One thing I love about the real estate space is there's opportunity everywhere. And when personal passion mixes with professional opportunities, it can lead to great ventures. In today's episode, I speak with Maria Zondervan, who is pursuing a niche within the special needs community where she sees enormous opportunity for an underserved market. This is the Passive Real Estate Strategies Podcast, where we educate career-driven individuals who have tapped out their earning potential, learn about passive real estate investing so you can continue building your wealth without compromising your time or taking on more responsibilities. I'm your host and managing partner at Realm Investors, a multifamily syndication group who has helped multiply millions of dollars for our passive investors. Thanks for tuning in and let's get on with the show. Hey, investors, welcome to another episode of Passive Real Estate Strategies. Today, I am sitting down with Maria Zondervan. Now, Maria has over 25 years of experience in this field. She's worked with a variety of asset classes and sizes, everything from single family to apartment complexes, 100 plus room hotels. She's also the founder of Valhalla Villas, which is a nonprofit that houses autistic adults. So Maria, we're extremely excited to have you here on the show. Thank you so much for having me. So tell us a little bit about your experience in the real estate world. You've been in this game for a bit of time. I mean, how did you get started? It happened while I was in college. I was studying one night and I just saw an info commercial about getting, you know, building your wealth through real estate. And it sounded too good to be true. But for some reason, I decided to spend my money that I was supposed to be spending on books for that semester on that course instead. And I took the course. It was Carlton Sheets and found that you really could go buy real estate with like no money down and start owning real estate. And so I was only 22, had almost nothing to my name and started building my equity. So it was pretty cool. I love it. That's really awesome. So what was the the strategy were they using? Was it like a seller financing course? It, it maybe sounds like with the no money down or what was like the first strategy? Yeah, it was primarily lease options, which were okay. rather new at the time. Very few people had heard of them. So it took a lot of convincing of potential sellers that this was a real thing, right? Now it's more commonplace. We we hear it more. Seller financing is it's more a thing. But back then it was pretty much banks or busts. Yeah. So it, it was a new concept that you kind of had to really show people the benefits of doing. And uh, yeah, it, it, it worked. It was just hard to find people who were okay with it because it was rather new at the time. Yeah. So how were you, you know, con- convincing people to go that route with you? So when you're buying these properties or you're looking for you know, your first few deals, were you just pounding on doors? Were you looking on the MLS? Like, what does that journey look like for somebody in that position? Well, it's less about convincing somebody to do it and more about finding the person that that's good for them, where it works for them. Somebody who doesn't need to get all the money out right now would like to have some income. You know, they might be in a situation where that's beneficial to them. So it's it's less of a sales and more of a finding the right fit. So really, it's just calling a lot of people until you find that right person. And I would also call people who had their properties listed for rent, but maybe they were tired of, of tenants, your typical tenant, right? And say, hey, I see you've got it for rent. I'm actually interested in buying it, but you could still make this rental income, but you won't have to deal with, you know, repairs and that kind of stuff anymore because I'm going to take that over for you. So that was awesome. that was a common lead in I used. Okay. And so you were just calling calling people. I mean, it sounds like that's a pretty good option. People, especially now, accidental landlords, right? That's a phrase that you hear a lot. And I think yeah. that's actually going to be coming up, you know, in the next couple of years with all these people who, you know, locked in a, a 2% mortgage rate, right? They're not going to sell. They're going to die and be buried in the backyard of that home. <laughs> but I think you'll be seeing a lot of those as well, where people, you know, they maybe don't want to be landlords, but 
it just makes so much sense for them to keep the property. So I think those might start to come up a, a little bit as well. And so, okay, so you were doing lease options. That sounds like it was going pretty well. Did you move on pretty quickly from that strategy? Like what was next up in your investing career? Well, being young, me and my husband at the time, we moved a lot. And so we would, whenever we moved somewhere, instead of renting, we would buy a house, but we wouldn't sell the, the last one. So we kind of accumulated some houses that way. And then, you know, 2006, 2007, we know the lending was all too easy, right? Yeah. <laughs> we were able to pick up more homes then. And yes, of course, the market dropped after that. A lot of value was lost temporarily, but we were long-term hold and they were all cash flowing. You know, we're still getting rents higher than our mortgage payments. So we just held on to the properties through that and made it through all of that. We actually did sell a couple of properties right at the top of that bubble, which was nice. Yeah. And we used those to buy businesses. So we end up buying a Massage Envy franchise okay. location. And then later we bought a second one and those produce a lot of cash flow as well. And then we needed somewhere to put that cash flow. And so that led back into more real estate. But we quickly realized that you can't scale so fast with the single family route. So, you know, having the cash flow from the businesses, we needed to scale a little faster. And so that's when we switched over to looking at multifamily. Okay. And so multifamily, so were, were you looking, how big were you considering multifamily at the time? Was it like, you know, two to four unit properties? Was it five plus units? No, we wanted to be in the commercial realm. So we had to be five units or above. So the first one we bought was a 12 unit. Okay. And then we followed that shortly with an eight unit. So we got to 20 units pretty fast. And we did those within a few months of each other. And then I started thinking about it. I'm like, wow, how long would it have taken us to buy 20 houses? You know? Yeah. <laughs> I'm going through that process with my son now. He's getting into real estate investing and, and like we're going through all the appraisals and all, all the stuff that you do with the single family homes. And, and I'm like, gosh, this is a lot of work for one unit. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> that um, kind of reminded me of why I got out of that. How did you find management of those, you know, eight to 12? Cause now, I mean, you've done all, all sizes and varieties of multifamily properties. And a lot of times investors might hear, okay, oh, you know, if you're going to buy a 10 unit, you, you might as well just buy a hundred. The hundreds have a certain scale. They have on-site staffing. You have certain advantages with you know the scale up with staffing and units. You know, what has your experience with those size ranges been? Yeah, I mean, they're not wrong, but not everybody can go out and buy a hundred units right off the yeah. bat, right? You, you're not going to get in with the brokers, the good brokers, until you really prove yourself a little bit. And if you want to buy it with your with your own money, you may not have the capital to go buy 100 units. Yeah. Few people jump right into syndications. I wouldn't recommend it. I think you should learn on your own properties, make the mistakes there before you're investing with other people's money. I think yeah. that's just a cautious, smart thing to do. But you're right. Property management on smaller properties is a challenge. Made some mistakes there. The first property manager we got into was part of a very big firm. So we mm -hmm. thought that was good because they've got scale. Yeah. But we were the small client for this very big firm and we just yeah. did not get the attention we needed. The property did not get the attention they needed. They had offered us the best rate. So we're like, yep, we need to keep our expenses low. So this is good for us. It was not good for us. And so we had to get out of that very messy arrangement. It's not an easy thing to go through either. As a matter of fact, they never even gave us back the keys to the units. We had to rekey every unit and all sorts of issues. So Firing a property manager or starting up with a new one can be yeah. not so fun, not so fun. It's but then we found a smaller property manager, you know, smaller team, more of a mom and pop, but very experienced. And they were local to the area. They wanted to improve that area. They wanted it to look great. They took kind of personal ownership of it. 
they cost us more. We're paying a lot more property management wise, but we end up getting much better revenue. Our turnovers were faster. The property looked better. We were getting better rent. So in the end, paying more made us more. Yeah. No, that's really, and firing property managers is one of the m- most challenging things that you can do. With it. Painful, it's, absolutely it takes painful. a long time, you know, it takes a couple of months to get them out and then onboard the new one. And then the financials are never complete. And then we got to chase them down for other, it's, and even just from an accounting perspective, it, it sucks. It's definitely a nightmare. And then, yeah, if you have to rekey properties, just not a big expense. So. Well, and we had a contract with them. We had to find a legal way to breach that contract which we were able to do because they were not performing at the standards they were supposed to according to a contract. But nonetheless, it was a legal fight as well. Yeah. Yeah. You could layer so much of that. That's why I think, you know, it's so important to have that established team there. You know, when people are asking me, hey, I'm thinking of investing with a few operators, I need to know that they've been in that market and have worked, if they are going to outsource management, that they've worked with that manager before. Absolutely. Pains, especially if you're going to look at a, you know, three-year deal or a three-year timeline. Okay, to have four or five months tied up in property management changeover and the issues that come with that, it's a significant amount of time for the investment. It is. I think those are really big, really big focuses of them. So right now, you know, you do, is everything you do mostly syndication? Is it all in the multifamily space or what does the portfolio look like now? Like, what are you working towards now? Yeah, that's exactly it now. So, I mean, I was investing as a limited partner in a lot of deals and you know my friends and family were hearing about this and they're like well can we get in on these deals and I was so before long I was like you know what I'm spending a lot of time evaluating these properties I would evaluate probably a hundred offers before I would choose one to go in with so I'm like yeah why not bring other people along yeah and so that's kind of what I started doing is I started helping other people get into this realm and, and particularly I have a lot of friends and family in the special needs community because I have a son with autism and a lot of them they don't have a lot of time on their hands but they need to grow their wealth to be able to support that special needs child right it's expensive to raise a child like that and it's very time consuming so you may not be able to have both parents work even and yeah uh, so yeah so start bringing them along in investments and now I'm working to take that a step further with that with a nonprofit that's actually going to be providing some housing for yeah. uh, autistic adult. I love that. And so you talked about before when you would invest in, in limited deals, you were just getting started. You would look at about a hundred deals. So you invest in essentially about 1% of the deals that you would look at. Yes. But these yeah, are yeah. already these sponsors coming to you and saying, Hey, Maria, we have this deal. We have, you know, 30 days to, to close on it. Do you want to invest in it? So what types of things would disqualify deals for you? Like, what were you looking at? Well, you mentioned one already. Do they have a team in that location? Are they familiar with that area? Do they already have relationships with a good property manager there? That is key. So that falls under the look at your sponsor, right? You want to see what kind of overall experience they have. I don't need everybody on the team to have, you know, 20, 30 years of experience, but there needs to be someone on the team that's very experienced. Having new people on the team is great because they bring in lots of enthusiasm and they're good to go, but you need to have somebody with experience that's taking things full cycle, knows the market, knows the area, and has the key relationships, right? Yeah. So I, I look strongly at the team. I look strongly at the market. I don't like markets that aren't growing. Mm-hmm. Growing markets is where you have that security of, you know, that you're going to continue to need that housing, right? Yeah. People say, well, people will always need homes. That's true, but they don't always need them in the same area, right? Yeah. <laughs> so a lot of people bailing out of some of the more expensive states and coming more towards 
the Sun Belt and Texas and Columbus and, and some areas like that. So I really look for that growth. If you get into a very high growth area, then the prices might be crazy. You know, I'm down here in Florida where prices went completely nuts and it was very hard to cash flow. So you have to think about, well, am I only worried about appreciation or do I want cash flow too? So, so part of it is looking at your goals and what you want, yeah. because maybe you want to get into a market that's not growing quite so fast. So you get kind of higher cap rates and can get in at a better price. So you cash flow more mm-hmm. during the whole period, which is a bit safer, but you may not get as much appreciation at the end. So it's, yeah. it's risk and reward, you know, like everything. So you have to weigh those sorts of things. And then, of course, I look at the asset itself, but mm-hmm. that's usually the last thing or, or the third thing I look at, I would say. You know, yeah. what kind of asset classes do I want to get into? When I'm on the GP side, I don't want to deal with class D or C minus properties. They can make a lot of money, but it is a lot of headache and I work too hard already. So I don't really want to work on that. If I'm a LP investor, limited partner, and I'm not going to have to do the work, I want to make sure that the sponsor is familiar with that type of asset class. So if I'm getting into that, because that's a whole different game than your A and B class asset. Same same with a eight class asset. If that's not what your sponsors are used to managing, you know, those people want to be catered to. They want the finer things. So yeah. uh, you, you got to make sure you have that familiarity. And the very last, I look at the business plan. Mm-hmm. You know, I want to know that there is a good business plan in place, but I also accept the fact that they're projections. Yeah. So I'm not going to pick one deal over another because this one says 13% IRR and this one says 14% IRR. Sure. I know they're projections. I'm looking at the underwriting. I'm looking to see who's being conservative, who's got safeguards in place, multiple exit strategies, good loans in place. You know, not looking at bridge loans right now, right? So, yeah. So that kind of stuff. <laughs> yeah, I think that's important. You know, I, I always talk about on the show, you know, the operators and the debt. And the debt is going to be, you know, likely your number one killer of, of your deals. That's really what bites most of these commercial investments in, in the butt, really, and, and really takes those deals. So that's something that a lot of people are learning right now as well. But it's some it's a lesson that needs to continue forward. You always have to look at the debt. I look at the debt before the deal. I think that's that's more important. So I think that's a really good checklist. What were you finding was some of the things that disqualified most of those deals that you passed on? Was it that you just didn't feel like the team was in place or you maybe they were using debt that you didn't like? You know, for somebody out there who's looking at a lot of deals and thinking about where to invest, you know, where were some of the biggest hot button issues for you that you ended up disqualifying a lot of deals from? Yeah, it's usually a combination of those things, but how long has the team been together? That's important. And, and you have to recognize that there's a difference between your your true sponsors of the deal and the various capital raisers that might be involved. If as an LP investor, you're you're working with a particular capital raiser, that's, that's, their job is usually to find those good deals for you, right? They're vetting tons and tons of, of deals for you. So if you've got a good person doing that for you, that helps a lot. Yeah. But when you're looking at the team, sometimes they'll have a, a, this huge team that they'll show. You got to find out who are the key players here who are actually going to be boots on the ground, you know, talking with that property manager every week, who's actually doing the work versus who's doing investor relations and that sort of stuff. Yeah. Those team members are a little less important, except for the person that's bringing you into the deal. You want to make sure they're going to keep pounding on those general partners to make sure they're getting the returns and executing that business plan. But it's usually a combination. I mean, there's usually not one main thing. It's it's all of those things. I weigh them all. Yeah. But if there's more than two two things that are popping up and making me uncomfortable, it's an immediate <laughs> disqualification. 
If okay, there's I one like- thing I might go back to him and say, hey, tell me what, what your plan is here because you're a little weak in this area. Yeah. I like that because, you know, when I got into the space, it was pretty shocking to me how the different teams are layered and how honestly some people market their offerings and market who is on the team. And and sometimes you find out that the person who is bringing all the, you know, the experience isn't even involved. They don't even know about the deal going on. It's just kind of a marketing thing, or maybe it's a program that they paid for. And so I think all of those things are, are super important. So and this is, you know, such a constructive conversation for anybody who's looking at deals, whether they're actively or passively looking to place their money. So tell us a little bit more about, so you had mentioned your nonprofit now, and when we were talking before the show, you mentioned it, it's sort of a syndication structure, but I, I didn't want to spoil it for the episode. <laughs> so tell us a little bit about how that works. Yeah. Yeah. So this is an, a new venture. So I'll throw that out there, but we launched right before COVID. That was a bad time to launch <laughs> a new endeavor. So it yeah. stalled a little bit, but we're up and running now. So it's great. But basically there's, so I mentioned my son has autism. He's 22 right now. And when your child is younger, you're just struggling to get through the day to day and get through school. Yeah. And then school ends and you're like, whoa, now what? My <laughs> child's an adult. What happened? And I think a lot of parents feel that way, but yeah. <laughs> with special needs, you're really starting to wonder what, what the, does the future hold? Mm-hmm. And what we find is, you know, 75% of autistic individuals live with their parents their entire lives. Mm-hmm. And most of them, or about 50% of them drive. And even with college education, some of them, you know, are very high functioning, extremely intelligent, but it's spectrum. So that's all over the place. Yeah. But about 75% are unemployed or underemployed because they don't have the social skills to deal oftentimes with those job situations or someone simply isn't willing to give them the chance. Yeah. And so the parents worry about, you know, their financial future, but also their mental wellness. You know, they, they still need to have friends and they have a hard time making that. And if you're not in a working environment, that makes it even harder. Yeah. And where are they going to live and who's going to take care of them should the parents pass? That's the biggest worry that I hear from parents. So I said, well, you know what? I have this autism experience and I have this real estate experience. Boom, let's put them together. And so we founded Valhalla Villas and it is going to be both building as well as buying existing apartment complexes and converting them over to housing for autistic adults. And that will provide all the social skills kind of stuff that they need, the community atmosphere that they need, employment placing, and all the services that parents might otherwise provide, you know, transportation, meals, helping them with, you know, life skills kind of stuff, training. So we're putting all that together and we're starting to take soft commitments for people who want to invest in this as a forever hold, because this is one of those properties where it's it's like a syndication in that investors pull their money to to buy the property, but it will never be, will be refinanced. You get your capital back, but then you'll have this property that will just cash flow forever. And then you can leave that to your child, whether that's a regular neurotypical child, as we say, or a special needs child that might need that income after you're gone. Regular syndications are great, but they turn every, you know, five to 10 years, depending on how long a hold period you get into. And if you left that to a special needs child, would they know how to reinvest that money, how to find that next new deal? Even, even regular quote unquote, regular children have problems with that, right? We know that 70% of wealth is lost by the second generation. Mm -hmm. This is a way to prevent that. You set them up. Yeah. That's so interesting. And so is, is it, uh, you know, to put a, I guess a more common label or something that people understand on it, is it sort of like assisted living where it's heavier staffing and you're going to have sort of those underwriting projections of assisted living? Is that the best way? To yeah. Just- so it's not assisted living in this, not at this point. 
So like I mentioned, autism is a spectrum. So right now we're more catering towards the higher functioning autistic individuals who have the ability to live on them on their own, have yeah. more of an independent life. As long as they have a little bit of assistance, someone's checking in on them. Someone's making sure, you know, they're taking care of their hygiene and the house cleaning and they're getting food and, you know, driving them to the grocery store if they need it, helping them get the jobs and putting together. It's very important to have some sort of social activities every week or yeah. they will just stay in that house or home or apartment <laughs> forever. They just won't go outside. Yeah. And so it's very important that that's kind of structured. Hey, every Friday night we have a pizza party or a movie or whatever it is to get them out into the world because that's the other big problem with this population is depression is very high and the suicide yeah. rate is astronomical. So we're trying to prevent all of those things. But no, we're not going assisted living route. Who knows what the future holds? I would love to be able to cater to everybody on that spectrum. Yeah. But there are already communities out there for people who need a little more assistance along mm -hmm. that line. There are special needs communities that kind of have that. But I couldn't find anything, at least in the Southeast where I was looking, which was specific for autistic people of that realm. There's special needs in general communities where it's a mix of all sorts of special needs, but every special need is a special need and they have yeah. different, different needs that need to be catered to. So, so specializing is great. Yeah, I understand. So uh, well, that's, that's fantastic. So, you know, Maria and anybody who's listening, I think that's a phenomenal idea and, and we'll definitely support your ventures. So for anybody listening, how can they get in touch and learn more about this project? Yeah. So, I mean, everything is linked through my main website, which is Blue Vikings Capital. So bluevikingscapital.com. There are all sorts of ways to connect with me there. All my social media is there. My email is there. And there's a link to Valhalla Villas, the nonprofit on there as well. But if anyone wants to learn more about this, happy to hop on a call with them. So there's there's a button there to set up a call with me if you want to learn more. Perfect. So listeners, we're going to put those resources in the show notes. And of course, while you're there, if you haven't already, make sure you download our free ebook, The Definitive Guide to Passive Real Estate Strategy. So Maria, thank you so much for coming on the show. Really appreciate you having me. Well, that's it for today's show. Make sure you subscribe so you don't miss any future episodes. And if you're looking to learn more about passive real estate investments, make sure you head to our show notes and download our free ebook, The Definitive Guide to Passive Real Estate Strategies, where we reveal the ins and outs of the truly passive ways to invest in real estate. We'll see you on the next episode.